I'm Monica Olson. And I'm Jennifer Walsh. And you're listening to the Biophilic Solutions Podcast, where every other week we sit down with experts and thought leaders across industries in order to explore the innate connection between humans and nature and why we need nature to thrive. We truly believe that in order to tackle the global environmental problems we're facing, we as humans must reconnect to the natural world and come to a better understanding of how we fit in and how we are so interconnected. So in every episode, we'll interview new guests that help us uncover and highlight nature-based solutions to get us on a path to greater health, tackling climate change, and ultimately getting outside and connecting with nature. So let's get to today's episode. Hey, Jennifer. Hey, Monica. So Jen. We obviously talk all the time about nature, why it's good for us, why we should all spend time in nature, and why we should protect it. So many of our guests are deeply involved in the environmental movement, whether they're designing parks, thinking about how to expand access to green space, or working directly on preservation projects. But one thing that we have never really gotten into is the history of public land in the United States. Basically, where did these ideas of creating parks come from in the first place? Yes, I think in our current climate, truly no pun intended, it's very easy to see everything in the context of climate change. However, the origins of the American environmental movement started with different issues in mind. First, people literally started noticing that we are cutting down forests faster than we could replenish those natural resources. And second, the publication of works like George Marsh's Man and Nature caused so many people to stop and think about the healing benefits of nature. Exactly. So our guest today is Jeffrey Ryan, author of This Land Was Saved for You and Me, How Gifford Pinchot, Frederick Law Olmsted, and a Band of Foresters Saved America's Public Lands. You know, we really couldn't have asked for a better guest to help us navigate this fascinating portion of American history. And he really has such a great way of bringing these historical figures to life and seeing all the connections that their work has to the modern environmental movement and, of course, to biophilia. Yes. So in this interview, Jeffrey also shares some of his own background with us. He is a lifelong outdoorsman, an avid hiker who's also written several books about the history of public land in the U.S. and about his own travels along the Appalachian Trail. We love talking to Jeffrey. So let's get into the interview. Jeffrey, we're so excited that you've joined us today on Biophilic Solutions. I'm absolutely loving the book. I really, really enjoyed it. Two of us are loving the book. Yeah. And so I can't wait to dig into it. But before we get into the book, I wanted to sort of hear a little bit about your background and your love of outdoors and how this came out of you, because it's a wonderful, wonderful story. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pretty wild story. My parents were always really interested in outdoor pursuits. So it got imbued in me at a very young age. Fortunately, grew up on the coast of Maine and my parents had a family boat. We would go out to the islands and that was really my first love affair with nature was the ocean, the birds, the islands, many of which were uninhabited. And I was basically set loose to go and explore while the parents were making cocktails and picnic making. <laughs> so I was just telling a friend this morning, one of my favorite adventures as a 11-year-old was discovering these old cottages on an island that had been built in the 40s and were falling into disrepair. And for me to go into the buildings, which unfortunately had been somewhat vandalized, but because of that, I saw the underpinnings of how the houses were built and got an early appreciation for that architecture. So the inquisitiveness was always there. It was how were things built? How were nature systems 
why is lichen growing here? Why are ferns here? That sort of thing. And then also very fortunately had a nature preserve behind the house I grew up in. So those woods became my stomping grounds as well. And all seasons, as kids, we'd get off the school bus and go snowshoeing back there. And as has been spoken about in other books, we seem to have lost that connection in a lot of ways, having the ability to introduce our kids to those experiences, but they were very nurturing for me. So everything just Mm -hmm. snowballed from there. I didn't stop. And how did you know that you wanted to become a writer? Because I know that you hiked the Pacific Crest Trail and then also the Appalachian Trail over a period of years. And that kind of led to your, I think it was your first book, right? Appalachian Odyssey. The nature love came first, but when did you decide you wanted to write? The nature and the writing were concurrent loves with me. And I loved telling stories and writing them from a really young age. My mother saved the first book I ever wrote. It was a short story called The True Story of Dogs in the Army, which a five-year-old kid would uh, (laughs) come up with. But anyway, always loved both. And I've been asked this before, what do I enjoy more? I'm spending time in nature or writing about it, and, and I can't really choose. So I always sort of knew that the two were passions of mine. I didn't really realize how they would become intertwined. And ultimately, they became Mm -hmm. intertwined when I went to work after college at a company called L.L. Bean, had already told my mother at age 16 that when I, quote unquote, finished growing up, I was going to write the L.L. Bean catalog. (laughs) And that's what you did? I ended up Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. So for 13 years, writing about outdoor products and naming products and coming up with new ways to describe them. And so the writing and nature exploits just continued to keep intertwining. And and that's ultimately how I got to where I am now. I love that. I love so my, that. my husband's first job out of college was writing the West Marine catalog, <laughs> if you're a voter. So, <laughs> I get it, yeah. But, and he was a big, or, I yeah. guess a big it's, sailor, um, but... It's an Um, incredible skill and it teaches you how to be concise because you only have so many mm -hmm. square inches to make your case in. So it improves your writing. I love that the underpinnings always been nature, but you're always kind of discovering, you know, your heartstrings, I guess, really told you where to go and pulled you in the right direction to continue to write, which I think is so beautiful. (laughs) I love that. Outdoors on the paths. Yeah, that's really interesting. A lot of your work is around preservation and con- mm-hmm. conservation. Can you describe to the listeners what the two are and the differences? Yes, absolutely. In a nutshell, what we got to pretty relatively early on in our country's history is this idea that the resources were inexhaustible. And particularly, we saw it in things like bison and passenger pigeons, but we also, most apparently to a lot of people, saw it in forestry. and. It basically started in New England and started working its way west as the cutting down of the trees literally built the country. But at the same time, there were no management practices around maintaining the resource. So in the minds of many people, it was trees as far as the eye can see. So let's just keep going. And in 1864, A fellow named George Perkins Marsh from Vermont wrote a book called Man and Nature, and he was one of the first ones to look around and see 
the evidence of forest destruction, particularly as it related to soil runoff, ruining of fisheries, floods and famines, and other things. And the book was incredibly influential. And basically, he started raising the issue of sustainability, which is conservation. At the same time, Mm -hmm. there were other people who began advocating for natural places just for their own sake, for the betterment of our spirit. Frederick Law Olmsted was one of the first and even constructed Central Park as a way to put nature in the realm of the urban environment. He felt that people in an urban environment needed nature. And one way was to show that he could build this big park in the middle of Manhattan, which at the time was nowhere near what it is now, but he saw the need for it. And also when he went out west and saw Yosemite, it became integral to the establishment of that park. It was also as a preservation thing that this is a resource that everyone should be able to enjoy and it should remain as untouched as possible. So you had these two competing ideas and they really started galvanizing. There were really people pulled in either direction. You tended to be labeled as either a conservationist or a preservationist. And the seeds were sown for a battle that would take place in the early 1900s, a very public battle over a public land that was putting you on one side or the other. And so that's been the way that things were up until recent history and things are starting to change where you don't have to be either or anymore. You can just be a person who believes in the sanctity of nature, but also realizes that there's room and need for forests to be managed, for resources Mm -hmm. to be managed. We can coexist in those realms. It's a relatively new concept, and it took a lot to get us there. Well, so that takes us to this book, This Land Was Saved for You and Me, which is a wonderful history of the forestry service, of how the concepts came to be, and to your point, the disparate opinions, right? So tell us a little bit about the pioneers. Olmsted was one of them. I think, you know, probably people know Olmsted best for New York City Central Park, although they They've done a huge linear park here in Atlanta, all over the country. Olmsted was very, very busy. But I think it was sort of early on, you kind of start with a scene of Olmsted managing a mine in Mariposa, which is near Yosemite. And that kind of blew my mind that Olmsted had this really strange background and the different things that he had done. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it made me, my next book may need to be like an Olmsted history because it really piqued my interest. And then you also give Olmsted really the credit with a lot of these concepts, although there's different stories about how the national parks came to be. But let's start with Olmsted and tell us a little bit about, because I think he's the pivotal guy, yeah, right? I love Flo. And actually, it's funny because I, I had known a little bit about Gifford Pinchot, who Olmsted passed the baton mm-hmm. to, but I had no idea mm-hmm. that he was as influential as he was. So when I was writing the book, I ended up going back in time and finding out that one of the things I really love about Olmsted is he had such a varied career. He didn't just start as a landscape architect. Everything that he mm-hmm. did in his youth, even his pitfalls, 
had a direct bearing on his becoming what he became. And some of it was happenstance. And a lot of it was just this sort of following a path of things that interested him that ultimately led to where he got to, which obviously pulls my heartstrings a little bit because I've had somewhat of the same experience. But Olmstead basically started out with the idea of becoming a successful fruit farmer, selling his wares to New York City. And that sort of went by the by when he realized that A, wasn't quite as lucrative as he thought, and B, his neighbor, the publisher, Mr. Putnam, said, boy, you're a gifted writer. You should come work for my new magazine, which I'm starting to go up against Harper's. And so he did have a knack for writing and became a correspondent of sorts and actually went to the deep into the American South pre-Civil War and sending home his exposés or an early Charles Kuralt, if you will, talking about a life <laughs> on the American road in the deep South from a northerner's perspective. So he developed quite a following, but he had also traveled to Europe where he saw his first public park. And he realized that public parks were necessary. And he started his own publishing venture to to take advantage of his own writing interests. And that went belly up. And he was sitting there completely distraught, wondering what he was going to do next when an acquaintance of his walked into this inn where Olmsted was licking his wounds and drinking tea and said, hey, I was just thinking about you. I'm paraphrasing. But there's a job to become superintendent of this park in New York City. You ought to apply for the job. So literally that night, Olmstead got on a ferry from Long Island, went into New York and got the job and became the supervisor of Central Park. We all know how that ended. But as he was supervising it, he became disillusioned with the guy who was running the financial side of it and ended up quitting. And using the Civil War effort as his excuse, he gets a job in procuring equipment for the war effort and needs to raise money to pay back his father and his creditors. He's way in the hole and gets the offer to run a mine in California for 10 grand a year, which is unheard of money back then, and figured, why not? Mm -hmm. I'll take it. So he goes out there, and by being there, gets the opportunity to develop and submit the first plan for Yosemite, which was given to the state of California in an act signed by Abraham Lincoln himself in 1864. Mm -hmm. So Olmsted looked at this vast holding of land, and I swear to God, this is a true story as far as I can tell. At one point during this exercise, he turned to one of his cohorts and said, Someday, three million people a year will visit this place. This is in 1865, he's saying this. And he says, we need to devise the park and construct the road system so that when uh -huh. people come, they are not trampling the resource. They're viewing it in its proper context and gaining the benefit of being in nature, which to me was just, it's unbelievable. <laughs> So, yeah. Well, yeah. he was so forward thinking and he even, I believe, mentioned, you know, we should have certain turnouts at the top. If anybody listening has been to Yosemite and we took our kids like two or three years ago to the giant sequoias and everything and where you're going to park your car and your or wherever your buggy at the time and, you know, take in the views. 
So that's so prescient for him to have thought that through, that this was going to be a major destination. Yeah. And also his writing is so rich with the benefits of being in nature for all of us at a time when we don't really think people were concerned with that. But particularly in New York, he mentioned, we need to have a place for everybody to go and sit under trees and gain the benefit of contemplation and solitude. And you're thinking, my God, this guy was literally hundreds of years ahead of himself. And and in the context of Central Park, he was not only understanding of where the future was leading, but he was also very cognizant of what he was planting there so that he was looking Mm -hmm. 20, 30 years down the road and saying, these trees will be mature and we need to have these ones growing here and these ones growing over there. And when he was constructing Central Park along with Calvert Vox, he turned to Vox and said, you know, someday he's looking around. He says, someday there will be giant buildings encircling this park. And he's saying this in 1858, when the highest buildings around him were one and a half stories high. So he had it, and he had it from the beginning. So that's all really cool. And then the other thing I'll mention about him that I find fascinating is his involvement in the Chicago World's Fair of 1892-93 was when it opened. But when he was designing that, he was adamant about the fact that they would have this island where people could go with small boats provided by the fair. So you had hundreds, you had literally tens of thousands of people walking this area. And he says, we need to have this place for people to gain solitude in the middle of all this hubbub Mm -hmm. so that they can really understand what it is that they're experiencing. And what was really funny about that was Teddy Roosevelt wanted his Boone and Crockett Club to have an exhibition on that island. And Olmsted said no, but the Japanese, <laughs> the country of Japan, asked if they could build this diminutive Kyoto, low-slung Kyoto-type building there, and he said it fits with the environment, so I'll let you have that. And so they built that, and Lewis Sullivan took his young architecture students out to see the structure and the island, and one of his students was Frank Lloyd Wright. So Frank Lloyd Wright oh saw this structure, wow. which you wow. know, all of a sudden Frank Lloyd Wright's entire architectural being and wherewithal yes. was informed by <laughs> this structure that was very simply designed and informed his whole architecture bent. So that's one of the things I just I, am blown away by. I love it because, Jeff, I mean, my face is lighting up when you were talking about Olmsted because Olmsted and Vox, I'm such huge fans of. So opening your book and seeing the first few pages were all about Olmsted. My heart kind of skipped a beat because what you were saying. So I live right next to Central Park and I lead wellness walks. But what I say to people is exactly what you just said was when they were designing Central Park, it was nothing. And they were designing for the future. And now we are the recipients of their vision. We get to live in this like beautiful, majestic place or walk in this majestic place that they only had like this morsel of an idea of what it could become for our health and well-being. And now now we get yeah. to be in that. And it's really so profound when you step back and say, oh, my gosh, you're right. Like, look at the beauty and the majesty of what Central Park has become. And Yosemite and everywhere else, but these were just ideas, just kernels of ideas in the 1800s. It's really 
that he got all sorts of people to sign on with. I mean, that's the other piece that protecting uh, Niagara Falls area, all the Mm -hmm. people who signed on to that, Walt Whitman and Thomas Carlyle, and all these people signed this 300, 400, 500 names on this one page they took out in the New York Times saying, we need to get this done. And he was able to galvanize these people around his ideas and disparate people from disparate walks of life. That's really inspiring. It it gives us hope going forward for a number of conversations that I think are important. We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out? What's that, Monica? The Biophilic <laughs> Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes, and I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations, we're going to have all sorts of great farm to table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings, and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Serenby for the 6th Annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. I have a quick question, but maybe this is off topic, but I feel like so many of these really incredible people in your book, it all happened like in the same time frame in the 1800s. Why do you think that is? It was like the 1860s to like 1890s. It feels like so much happened in terms of forestry and understanding how do we protect versus how do we take away from. So why do you think that was all at the same time? Part of it was a growing consciousness. And that's one of the things I I really wanted to mention. So thank you for bringing it up is that it was a movement that was led by these very dynamic figures, but the seeds were sown Mm -hmm. decades before. And there were people like a guy named Franklin Benjamin Huff in upstate New York who went to medical school and gave up his practice because he read Man and Nature. And this is in the 1870s Mm. and said, my calling is to protect trees and inventory trees and traveled around the United States, basically taking inventory of what was growing where and created a 600 page report for Congress on these are our existing forests and this is why we need to continue to protect them. So there were people like him, but then there were also real impacts on the ground. And I talked about this too, is that there were real negative impacts of particularly clear cut forestry where cities were flooding, 
Pittsburgh had a horrendous flood at the turn of the century in the 1900s. The tourism business in the White Mountains was suffering because people would climb the mountains to look at the view and see devastated forests as a result. Sure, and there were sure. there were mills that got flooded out, fabric mills that were in New Hampshire and put 3,000 people out of work overnight. So you had these incidences happening and the growing realization that something needed to be done. And it took many, many, many false starts of presenting the idea and getting pushed back. And it just finally culminated in a groundswell that pushed everything over the top. But I think that there was just a growing realization in the Adirondacks. They were adamant about not letting any forestry take place. They wanted it to be forever wild because of the devastation they had seen. They felt that even practice sustainable forestry was something they didn't even want to hear about. In their mind, they'd quote unquote seen forestry and goodbye. Thank you very much. We'll take it from here. So it's really interesting how all of that started coming together from a variety of different viewpoints. Well, the other interesting thing is, and I think it was Olmsted again, right? He was called on to do Vanderbilt's Biltmore, right? Which is just, you know, I'm based in Atlanta, so just north of us in Asheville. So tell that story is interesting too, because he Mm -hmm. sort of incubated a kid who became maybe one of the first head of the forestry forest. The first, right? But there was no forestry school (laughs) in the country. No. So that's the other thing. Tell us a little bit about how that whole thing happened, because then you did have a number of men coming out of like the Yale Forestry School and other places that ended up leading the country. But tell us a little bit about Vanderbilt, what he wanted, because there was a forest there or there is a forest there and how that whole. Yeah, well, Vanderbilt accumulated all that land. It was an enormous amount of property Mm -hmm. and a lot of it had been clear cut. So he was distraught about that. And Olmsted was his landscape architect. And this was all happening at the same time that Olmsted was also designing the Chicago World's Fair. So to say he was burning the Mm -hmm. candle at both ends is, you know, (laughs) nuts. I mean, he was also supervising other projects at the same time. So he looked around and said, this forest really needs to be managed. And he had also become, before that, was the landscape architect for a guy named James Pinchot, who was mm-hmm. a multimillionaire in Pennsylvania, whose family had, had made their money through clear-cutting forests and decided that he didn't like what their legacy had been, so decided to become an importer of French wallpaper instead and made $7 million and built a mansion and had homestead come do the forestry stuff. But what was really cool about that is James Pinchot had also read Man and Nature, which was the most influential Mm. book in his life. And part of it was when Marsh was saying, we need to restore forests. This is in 1864 again. We need to restore forests and we have it within us to do it. And when Pinchot read this, he said, my God, my son needs to become a forester even though there was no such thing. Mm, And so he sent his child Gifford to Yale, where he regaled his friends there with the story of how he was going to become a forester, which they all scratched their heads and 
didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> After graduation, his father and mother sent him to France and Germany to study forestry as it existed there and had existed and came back with these ideas and announced to the world that I'm here to become America's forester. And no one listened to him, basically. He couldn't get any work. And so he was really trying to make a name for himself when Olmsted got the Asheville job at the Biltmore and said to Vanderbilt, hey, um, I have just the guy to do the forest management part because I can't do all this myself. Why don't you hire this youngster, Gifford Pinchot? And so that was his first chance to prove the efficacy of forestry as a profession and to show that there was a way to make money from forestry while retaining and maintaining the resource. So that's how all that started. Mm. The Baton Pass. <laughs> I love yeah, that. and it was so interesting because many of us have been to Biltmore State. You just think how the grounds are just so beautiful and the, the forests around it are just so stunning. And I didn't know the story about Olmsted until your book, Olmsted, and then, of course, Pinchot. And I didn't know like, Pinchot is a father of modern forestry. It's And it started yes. right there at the Biltmore yes. State. It's really yeah, mind-blowing. It really it's is. And then, you know, the third leg of the stool, the third part of the book is how most of these young foresters that were hired by Pinchot actually had also gone to Yale, which was becoming a forestry by that time, but other schools as well. And it's interesting that those foresters, the first generation of foresters, many of them who saw forestry in practice felt that, okay, we have national parks, we have a preservation part of it, but those are still being hyper-visited by people and they were becoming more and more popular. So they were natural places, but not as natural as some of them would like. And mm. so they said, we have these managed lands, which are multiple use now. The forests are for recreation, they're for forestry. The other public lands are for grazing and mining and Everyone has a place in this tableau except for wilderness. And so it's really interesting that of the seven or eight founders of the Wilderness Society, five of them came from this first generation of forestry who said, okay, now we need places that are just what Howard Zahnheiser called untrammeled by man, places designed to visit, but to leave largely alone. And now we're seeing the value of having those as well. So I'm really fascinated by how all of those things came into being and the distinct role that each one of them play going forward. I feel that there's a place of need for all of those, all of those pieces mm -hmm. of the puzzle. Well, your earlier book, The Blazing Ahead book, was about, I think I'm saying this right, Benton McKay and Myron Avery, right? right? And how their rivalry built the Appalachian Trail. And so that was another thing. So just starting out, McKay, I think, ended up going to the Harvard Forestry School. But did he work for Gifford? He did. Is that how he kind of came yeah. into the world? What's cool about Benton, and, and I use Benton in this land as well to, as sort of a glue, because he was the one guy, yeah. the one constant through this whole thing. So what was really cool about McKay to me, again, he was one of these Olmsted type characters who had all these varied influences in his life. And unlike Olmsted, Olmsted articulated them particularly well. And Benton was not a great articulator. He was a genius, but he wasn't a great communicator. 
and would often complain to his friends that were great writers that I've got these great ideas, but I can't say them as well as you can. Why don't you write them for me? And they said, no, we're busy enough. <laughs> but Mackay was actually an interesting path because he was very familiar with the White Mountains in particular, the Green Mountains as well. So Northern New England hiking as a youngster. But he was always trying to figure out what he was going to do with his life. And finally, somebody mentioned to him, you ought to go to forestry school. It's the perfect thing for you. It's outdoors. It's thinking. It's being alone to come up with ideas. It's articulating the ideas through reports, et cetera, et cetera. And so he thought, gee, I think I'll apply to the Yale Forestry School. And so he did. And he got a letter back from Henry Graves, the head of the school, when he said, you know, Harvard just started one. Isn't that your alma mater? Why don't you try that? So he actually applied and got to be the first graduate of the Harvard Forest School. But he was on his way on a train to go to work for Gifford Pinchot in Washington when he was sent a telegram to turn around and go back. They had a new job for him, and that was to articulate the need for and write the report that would actually culminate in the creation of the White Mountain National Forest in New Hampshire. So mm -hmm. it was the perfect job uh. for him. And then he worked for the Forest Service for many years, for 12 or 15 years, and he became disillusioned for two reasons. One was he wasn't quite sure that he was fitting into the bureaucracy, which he was 100% correct on. And he <laughs> wanted to cut his teeth as a writer himself. And that didn't work out so well. But in the wake of the loss of his wife in 1921, he was devastated. And a friend invited him to come to his northern New Jersey gentleman farm and recoup a little bit. And a constant theme in Mackay's life was finding equilibrium in nature. And so he found it again. In the wake of his wife's death, he found himself walking around these fields and came up with an idea for an interstate hiking trail that would go all the way at the time from Mount Mitchell to Mount Washington. Later on, it was extended at either end, but pitched the idea for the Appalachian Trail in 1921 and took off mm. and became a thing. And then later on- amazing. He saw the ingress of the automobile onto both the Appalachian Trail and just in general, the explosive impact of automobiles, particularly as it related to not just the Appalachian Trail, but national parks and other areas frightened him. And he and some others decided that that was the impetus for them to start the Wilderness Society, which really started advocating for these areas that would not be accessed by automobiles and could be saved as intact ecosystems for the benefit of everybody. It's a cool baton pass through all of these characters that told a linear story. Yeah. And to think about the imprint that the automobile was, I think the one thing, and I think of the Blue Ridge Mountains here and the Blue Ridge Scenic Highway, right? That they're like, well, you need a beautiful view for the cars when they drive through, which as somebody who's driven through them, I'm like, oh, it's gorgeous. But these people who there was no road is like, why would we have them on? And I forget the, the terminology, like basically on the high side, why not put them on the low side? 
you can still get them up there, but you're not encroaching on all the beauty of nature and like actually running along the Appalachian Trail. Right. And so the fight between these two sides was really interesting. And Mackay was not yeah. getting anywhere with that argument. He he actually had to step mm-hmm. down from the Appalachian Mountain Club or the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, as the mothership was called. He was ousted over <laughs> that issue because he was pushing hard for the organization to pass an internal ordinance about we need to come out against Skyline Drives. Wow. And Avery's thing was, That's it. we need to have a contiguous trail, whether it's coexisting with a road or not. And let's just get the park service to just move the trail over a few feet. And Mackay was apoplectic because he said, the whole reason I started this whole thing was to get away from man-made, sure. the man-made world and gain perspective and a recreational and an interpersonal perspective. And here we are literally building 33 miles of road over the top of the Appalachian Trail. What are we doing? And so he started advocating. Mm. He wrote a very wonderful piece called Flank Line versus Skyline, where he was talking about exactly what you were talking mm-hmm. about is why can't we have the automobile down in the valleys more and occasionally come up to the viewpoints, but why do we need to go over the tops? And this is at a time when 11 other Skyline drives were being proposed in the country, including one the length of the yeah. White Mountains in New Hampshire and the Green Mountains in Vermont and the Massanutten Range, which was the next range over to the west of the Shenandoahs. And the proliferation of the automobile, it was like the adoption of the iPod or iPad or iPhone. It went from 10% car ownership to 80% families owning a car in something absurd mm-hmm. 30 years, 20 years. Yeah. Um, and so we don't think about that much today, but that had a huge impact on the landscape psychologically and, and in real life. When you were writing this, Jeff, were you constantly surprised or were you expecting these stories? Or I mean, because this book is really, I just, I think Monica and I, are, we both finished <laughs> at the same time. I said, oh my gosh, it's just so good because each person had such an interesting story. So were you surprised by what you were finding when you were researching I was. This? And it's funny because you think you know some things and you do know some things. And of course, I picked up dribs and drabs along the way researching other projects, but When I started this whole thing, what I was trying to do is a finding your roots of the conservation story. And I realized Mm. that the intertwining was so intense that there was really no way. I'd like to think I hit the right tone with the right number of people, because if you go any deeper, it just the roots getting too complex. (laughs) But I had this aha moment. It was really funny, a really quick story about this. I have a dear friend, David, who's an avid reader, and I was really wrapped up in this book totally. And I went over to visit him because he has an office with a big whiteboard, one whole wall. And I said, I need to use your whiteboard. He said, go ahead. I'm in meetings all the time. You can just do the whiteboard thing. And he came out and he said, I just read this book about Rudyard Kipling. You really need to read it. And I said, I can't. I'm on Complete overload. I cannot take no Rudyard Kipling on in addition to, you know. And so he said, it's a quick read. It's a really quick read. And I'm like, damn it. So I went home and I read it. It's called If. 
It's a story about when Kipling was living in Bennington, Vermont, who knew? And he was writing the joke. Right. And so I'm reading this and all of a sudden this random sentence is in there, at least from my perspective. And it says, while they were having their house built, they were staying in a cottage down the street. And the cottage had just before the Kiplings got there, it had just been rented by a playwright named Steele Mackay and his family. And I went, oh, my gosh. Oh, <laughs> ben Mackay was in the cottage down the street with his father, who was writing a play oh when Rudyard Kipio was like, you got to be kidding me. So Wild. all this stuff just started creeping in from time to time when I was writing it. All I could think of was that whoever edited that book, I, as an editor, I probably would have said, no one knows who Steele Mackay is. Take the sentence out. But for some reason, it was left in there. And I think that reason was I was supposed to read that book. It's fine now because the guy thing was like, oh, my God, that's just insane. <laughs> and so I read it. It was funny. But, yeah, you know, there was stuff like that. So, yeah, I was surprised. And one of the things I wanted to touch on is the National Park Service, because that is also an interesting story. And I was drawn to the grassroots effort that they put in to photographing the parks, like before, in order to basically encourage the government <laughs> to create a national park service, they realized we actually need to get the customers, the citizens of America on board campaign, with this. Right. And so tell us, yeah, yeah. So yeah, tell us how they did that. Well, that's funny because it was really interesting because they had, it was so funny to look back on history and think there are these times when people think, if we create this thing, what if no one comes? And in retrospect, you have to laugh sure. because it's absurd. Of course, people came. And the same thing happened with the Appalachian Trail. It was, gee, we got this whole thing built. Now, what if no one comes? And now we have millions of people walking a mile on the Appalachian Trail every year. So I think the same thing was happening mm -hmm. with the parts. And Stephen Mather was worried that, A, he was a little bit worried about taking control of the service because he didn't know if the funding was going to be forthcoming year to year. And so predominantly at the beginning, it was railroads that they were using to get people there. But with the advent of the automobile, he and Robert Sterling Yard, who he hired to be his publicist, who was an old friend from newspaper days, he hired him to let's do a marketing campaign to get people to go to the parks. And so they started doing books, photo coffee table books, if you will. Mm -hmm. And at first they were soliciting photos from anyone who had been there just to get these beautiful Vista shots. But that's what they were doing. And then they got travel agencies involved. They were basically on Mather's dime getting these things printed once Yard pulled them together wow. and then did a massive mailing campaign. At the same time, Grosvenor, who was the head of the National Geographic Society, had agreed that once mm -hmm. the Park Service was established, that within the first year, they'd do an issue on national parks. And between the two things, it just absolutely took off like wildfire. And then they had to build the infrastructure to handle the people when they got there. So now they have the opposite problem. Sure. Mm -hmm. Now we need hotels and yeah. souvenir stands and we need rangers and to do interpretive events and the singing ranger with the bouncing ball. And 
all that stuff. And all that came after the fact once the horse got out of the barn. But it was really interesting mm-hmm. that they, they were brilliant about getting the parks front and center in publications, all sorts of publications, and had outreach to yeah. garden clubs and you name it. Sure. What struck me, because, you know, so much of this is they were talking about biophilia before biophilia was even a term, right? They understood that innate connection. They just didn't have this sort of more common psychological term for it. But the other thing that I thought was great is that when Mather took the group, because one of the things was he took a group up to one of those ridge lines, and he kind of quotes about how amazing this vision was. But he says afterwards, the trio sat overlooking the incomparable vista. The discussion took on a wider perspective, one that embraced more than the acquisition and protection of the land surrounding them to encompass a vision for the future. One that for the first time was built on the assumption that a National Parks Bureau would come into being. And then one of the gentlemen on it says, it was so memorable because it was a glorious afternoon and we sat there. And when we returned to Washington, discussed it, we had had this moment in nature. And I wrote Mm -hmm. in the notes, like, were they affected by the awe Uh, of the moment? And did that make them even more collaborative? And hopeful and purposeful when they went back to sell it. Absolutely. And, you know, that did. Was just- and once you feel that awe, as Olmsted himself said, once you feel that awe, you want to return to get to it again and again. Mm. It's and it's a wonderful yeah, it's me goosebumps it's, when you it's say just that. a wonderful <laughs> perspective, and he's absolutely spot on. When we return and experience that awe again, it fills us with a sense of possibilities a sense of perspective. It's like any time I get back on the trail again, it's like, ah, I'm home. And that, you know, I look forward to it. I'm almost 60 years into it, right? But I'm still, like, every time I get out of the car and put the pack on and take those first few steps, it's like, man, why did I put this off? It doesn't even have to be the huge vista. It's just being in the trees and in the moss and breathing the air and And it could be Central Park. And that's, I guess, part of my great message is it's there within reach. We don't have to go Mm -hmm. all the way across the country, although it's nice. (laughs) Many of us live within reach of a green space. And I highly advocate taking our shoes off and putting our feet in the grass. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, I love that your book made me feel inspired enough to think, yes, all these people were doing this almost like 200 years ago or whatever. But I felt inspired that there's so much more opportunity ahead of us. And there's so much actually white space or green space, if you will, of possibilities of what we all as human citizens, especially in the U.S., can create together to make, like we were talking about, Monica, I was talking about hope and possibility. Like There's so much we can do together as a collective in this biophilic nature underpinning of how do we help one another? It's, it's really It powerful. is. And it was interesting. When I first finished the book, I finished it with the passage of the Wilderness Act. And I had a back and forth mm-hmm. with my publisher on another part of the book. And I said, I'd like to rewrite that part of it. Can I have another week before I need to get it back to you? And she said, yes. And I actually used that week to rewrite the last chapter because I didn't want the book to end 100 years ago. I wanted it to end now. Mm. And so I wrote that last chapter. And what it's about is just that, is 
the intersection it. of conservation and preservation and the fact that this doesn't stop in 1964, that mm-hmm. there are some really cool mm-hmm. things going on now. And I called out the Northeast Wilderness Trust because what they're doing is so profound and awesome is that they've, to date, I think, been able to put 65,000 acres of land in New York and New England back into play because they're collaborative with the forestry movement and say, look, what if we had a situation where instead of building steel beams overseas somewhere, we harvested mature trees that were mature enough so that we have mature trees in their shadow. So we're not, we're taking advantage of the carbon sink but we're taking mature trees mm-hmm. before they're about to go bad and we're turning them into beams and we're using those for architecture. Now we have locally sourced wood going to work for us, not being trucked across the world mm-hmm. or forged with mm-hmm. a huge amount of energy expense. What if we did that, but also in the same tract of land, we're rewilding forests that have been cut or protecting mm-hmm parts of the forest that just should be forever wild. Can we do that together? And that's what they've been doing is joining hands and and finding common ground. And I think it's so amazing and hopeful and also has a lesson in there about working together, working collaboratively, even Mm -hmm. if at the face of it, it looks like we have nothing in common or we're working at opposite ends. So- Again, I think there was a reason I got the mailing from them about two weeks before my book was was due. And I said, Absolutely. oh, my God, this Absolutely. is it. You know? So, yeah, I just felt like I was yeah, ready no, for think- that message to resonate. Yeah, and I do think that your book tells the story of this handoff that keeps happening. And so now it's our turn. Into sort of what are we going to do? And I thought that was a great way to end it. Thank you. And a great way to end our conversation, perhaps. Thank you. We do want to know, like, what are you working on now? How can we support you? Definitely, we want everybody to go buy the book. We'll put that in the show notes. This land Mm -hmm. um, was saved for you and me. But what's next for you, Jeffrey? Oh, gosh. I've started in the tradition of Appalachian Odyssey, which took me 28 years to hike the Appalachian Trail with my friend. I've started a new adventure and I'm not ready to give a peek under the kimono yet, but there is something <laughs> underway. And I'm also, we'll keep an eye please out. Please do. And I'm also working on a new book about a guy from Monson, Maine, rural Maine, who was a 22 year old boy in 1934, went to the Himalayas to climb a mountain that he thought was higher. He was led to believe was higher than Everest and yeah. ascended it. And even when he found out it was shorter, he figured I'm here. I might as well do it anyway. So it's a, <laughs> it's a really fascinating story. Everything that they were going up against in 1934 in China. Wow. To go a thousand miles up the Yangtze River to begin with just to get to the base of it is just imagine. astounding yeah. for a 22-year-old kid who uh, on a flyer said, what the heck? I'm going to the Himalayas. See you later. <laughs> See you in a couple of years. Incredible. I'm jumping on a ski. Yeah, right. Ship. Exactly. So to this day, he's one of 17 people who have successfully climbed that peak. And it's just astounding. It's 100 years later and it's crazy. 90 years later. Yeah. So 
sounds so amazing. interesting. I can't wait yeah. to read that. He also became yeah, the president of the University well, of Alaska, which is also one of those. Oh, wow. So, okay. That's okay. Make There's it a lot to this. I cannot wait to read. Yeah. Great. Sure. We really enjoyed your time and we loved your book. And we'll put all the information in our show notes. Our listeners can definitely buy your book. And it's such a quick read too, but it's so fast. And I've got so many highlighted yeah. pieces in it. So I can't mm-hmm. wait to refer back to them many Wonderful. times over. Thank you so much. So right off the bat, I'm fascinated by the idea that conservation and preservation used to be these kinds of opposing views, but have come together more and more in recent years. Yeah, I'm so completely with you on that. So interesting. Yeah. So on one side, you have the conservationists who are concerned about resource management and sustaining a supply of timber. So we're not just using more than we're putting back into the land. And that really makes sense to me. The other hand, you have a true preservationist who are advocating for pristine, wild, untouched nature for a more idealistic goal of reconnecting to the earth, which I also love. Yes. And both approaches had their own merits. And personally, I'd like to say that I'm on board with both. Although you know my perspective on the word sustainable, I really think we need to think of resource management in regenerative terms. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Regenerative forestry is also a thing if anybody wants to look it up. And maybe we'll bring somebody on to talk about kind of what the modern conversation is around that. It's a great idea. I was also fascinated by the story that Jeffrey told us about Frederick Law Olmsted and Frank Lloyd Wright. I mean, these are two iconic figures for people who are interested in biophilia and biophilic design. So it was really interesting to know that Olmsted's work on the Chicago World Fair and such a profound influence on Wright. I had no idea. Yeah, I know. What a wild connection. I love learning about these people during the same period in history. So My final big takeaway, of course, is this lovely conversation we had with Jeffrey about awe. You know, I thought he brought up so many important components of awe. Awe is so fascinating because it's an emotion we're really at the forefront of understanding. But I think you're so right to say that awe must have played a role in the foundation of our national park system. I think it definitely did, you know, and I love what Jeff said about how once you feel a true sense of awe, it's something you'll continue to seek out because that sense of wonder fills you with perspective and possibilities. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. I also loved his point about finding awe in the smaller moments. And when you're alone in the woods or when you pick up a mossy smell or hear the ocean, you don't have to go all the way to Yellowstone to feel awe. No, or you just go on one of your walks to feel awe. Exactly. Um, (laughs) If anyone is interested in the history as much as we are, we definitely really recommend going to the show notes, get a copy of This Land Was Safe For You and Me. Jennifer and I both highly recommend it, you know, and obviously get outside. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, Monica, talk to you later. Bye, Jen. Thanks so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Give us a five-star rating and please leave us a review. It really goes such a long way towards helping us reach a wider audience and sharing these amazing interviews and solutions with the world. Absolutely. So thanks so much for following and reviewing the podcast. And we'll be back with another amazing interview in two weeks. You're now a part of the biophilic movement. 